0: Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same Todd read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Miss American History, when you do enroll. And get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I've got a great class out, 25 People Who Changed America. It's on sale through March. If you're on the email list, you've got the coupon. Once it is out of pre-order, which is in March it's going to be full price so you want to get that also all my classes are available at 25 off at the lowest prices you'll ever see them because there is a price increase coming in in april so you're going to want to get that coupon as well you got to be on the email list to get that so make sure you're heading over there to pick those up you can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com throw a few pennies my way get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff by clicking on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com and as always Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share my material on social media. It's a great way to uh, grow the audience organically, get people interested in it. We need more people doing that. And I want to wrap up the week this week with something that I'm, I'm piggybacking on, something I said yesterday about distorting history and how there is no objective history. We talked about that with no objective view of Politics with the first piece this week on Americans getting American media getting us involved in wars. Uh, we, I mean, that's clear. We talked about it with conservatism, how conservatism just as simply adopts the latest discarded leftist position, and that I mean, if you don't have a historical understanding, you don't know that. But I want to talk about this idea of states' rights. See, you often hear this distorted notion that states' rights is born out of Racism of the 1950s or racism of the 1850s. No one was talking about states' rights before that. In fact, that term, nobody even used the term states' rights. And it's only because of race that people use that term. Well, this is simply not true. We know that people used the term before that, and it wasn't in favor of any type of racial situation or anything else. We know people talked about quote-unquote states' rights long before the 1850s, long before the 1860s, long before the 1950s. And this was not fabricated out of thin air as a you know, some theory about defending race in America. And I'm going to give you a concrete example of that with one of the most important thinkers in the late 18th, early 19th century, and that's John Taylor of Caroline, the most Jeffersonian of all the Jeffersonians. His book, Tyranny Unmasked, should be read He's got several others. New views on the Constitution is very good. Um, uh, so I, I think that you need to look at, at John Taylor as someone who is, uh, I'm sorry, Constructions Construed and Constitutions Vindicated. Uh, but you should look at John Taylor as someone who is at the top of your, of your wish list when it comes to books to read from those in the 19th century. And I'm going to go to Tyranny of Mass. This is the Liberty Fund edition of the book. It's on page 199. If you're following at home, if you got the book, he says, "Can it be imagined then? Uh, can it then be imagined that the states, when forming a constitution and reserving a considerable share of political power to themselves, could have intended that this reservation should be merely, should be merely didactic and utterly devoid of the only means by which it could be preserved?" Such a doctrine amounts to the insertion of the following article in the Constitution. Quote, Congress shall have power, with the assent of the Supreme Court, to exercise or usurp and to prohibit the states from exercising any or all the powers reserved to the states whenever they shall deem it convenient for their or for their general welfare. I cannot perceive that a negative able to prevent such aggressions, which may alter the theory of our government, is less necessary for the preservation of liberty and the integrity of, st- of the state's rights is necessary for the purpose than the, uh, than the regal, executive, senatorial, representative, and judicial negatives. So he's saying, look, there's the term state's rights already being used in 1822. And he's saying, look, I, this is what we're doing. If we say we have a constitution, and let, me, let me back this up now. If he's saying that that, we, that the government has unlimited powers, then we should just insert this clause into the Constitution. Let me read it again. Congress shall have power with the assent of the Supreme Court to exercise or usurp and to prohibit the states from exercising any or all of the powers reserved to the states whenever they shall deem it convenient or for the general welfare. He's saying this is exactly what we're doing with the Supreme Court if the Congress passes on constitutional laws, the President signs them, the Supreme Court agrees to them, this is what we've got. Might as well just throw the clause in there. Because essentially what we've done is create a government of unlimited power. And there's no block if the states can't block it. He says, all these negatives are considered as necessary to preserve rights and powers, constituting portions of sundry theories contrived for the purposes of securing civil liberty, and to unite to prove that without this practical mode of defense, theoretical reserved rights and a division of powers are are insufficient for the end. It is more equally inconceivable to me that our state governments will be more corrupt than tribunes, kings, presidents, senates, representatives, and judges, and are therefore less worthy of being entrusted with a negative power for self-preservation." So he's saying, why do we think the states would be more corrupt than all these other things, than congressmen, than judges, than presidents, than kings? Why would states be worse than these things? If such was the opinion of the framers of the Constitution, why were they entrusted with so much power? But if they were thought trustworthy, worthy as to the powers given and reserved to them, could they have been considered an unworthy, as unworthy of being trusted, also with the same means of preserving these powers conferred on all other political departments? saying, why would the framers of the Constitution give the states so much power if they were not trustworthy? And if they are trustworthy, then why don't they have the power to protect themselves? That's the question. Well, you see, again, this is because they're all just a bunch of racists, and this is all fabricated. The states really didn't have these powers. That would be the response. The states didn't have these powers. This is a central authority with national government with no powers of the states. But if clearly the Constitution doesn't exist that way, but this is exactly what Taylor is saying. Well, why is it? That we have a situation where, if the states, if the founding generation trusted the states, the framers of the Constitution, I mean, Taylor's part of the founding generation, but if the framers trusted the people of the states, why is it that we can't trust them with a check on federal power? It might even be contended that they are less likely to corrupt the principles of the Constitution than the federal government itself. And that therefore, a negative power in their hands for self-preservation would cause fewer inconveniences than an affirmative power in the federal power to charge the Constitution, unsubjected to any state check. But whether the state political departments are necessary or unnecessary, convenient or inconvenient, good or bad, they have been established, however erroneously, upon a supposition that they were really very important members of our political theory for the preservation of liberty. And therefore, while as they last, we ought to reason upon the supposition that they are so. We must then conclude that if a power to preserve the rights conferred on them for this end must attend the rights, or they cannot affect the end, the want of such a power or whatever may render them dependent on another constituent for the, of the same theory must be a movement toward theoretical tyranny. So he's saying, look, if we're going to deny, I'm just going to paraphrase what he said there, if we're going to deny the states the, the power to defend themselves, to check the power of the central authority, that's tyranny. These states were created. They have powers according to the Constitution. And if they cannot protect themselves from abuse by the general government, that is tyranny. There's no other name for it than tyranny. So let's move this forward to the modern era. If the states cannot protect themselves against the center, and what I mean by that is they can't defend their powers against encroachment by the center, there's no other word for it than tyranny. If you look at issues that have always been the purview of the states, this is something I mentioned on Tuesday. We'll just take the social issues like same-sex marriage, right? We'll just take that issue. That was always the purview of the states. It was never a national issue. But a federal court decided that a state did not have this prerogative anymore. And so, therefore, all the states had to fall in line. Well, as John Taylor would say, there's one word for this, tyranny, because there's nothing in the Constitution that allows the federal courts to do this. There's nothing in the Constitution that allows the federal government to legislate on this issue. This is one thing where the Obama administration was actually correct, Eric Holder, when he said we're not going to enforce Parts of the Defense of Marriage Act, that essentially were unconstitutional to begin with because it wasn't a federal issue. The states could do what they wanted. They essentially were defending federalism by saying we're not going to enforce this law because it's unconstitutional. The states can do what they want in this particular issue, whether if California goes into this, whatever, but the other states don't have to abide by it. You see, that's that's the issue now. Well, what about property and all kinds of then you get into privileges and immunities clause and all this kind of stuff? Well, I mean, you know what? All that would say is that you can own property somewhere. You didn't have to recognize marriages from other states or anything else. I mean, in California, what if they say you can marry a building? Which some idiotic woman out there—I saw this this piece. She married a train station or something. Do we have to? Does the state of Alabama have to recognize that mental illness? Of course not. But yet, we some—you have to recognize other things. You see, this is the problem. This is the problem. If the general government, through the Supreme Court, which is what Taylor's pointing out here, through the Supreme Court can say that this is legal, even though everybody knows it's not, then that's the very definition of tyranny, where a federal court can do this. He says, The answers to this reasoning, which I recollect, are first that an express power is given to the legislature and executive departments to control each other, but not to the federal and state governments. The reply seems easy and conclusive. The mutual negatives between our two legislative chambers... Well, let me back up what he's saying here. There's checks... And balances in the federal government. There's no check and balance between the federal government and the state government. He said, well, these things were created, but there's nothing created in the Constitution for this. And he's saying, well, this is an easy answer. Let me explain it to you. The mutual negatives between our two legislative chambers and that given to the president are expressed because they do not result exclusively from the inherent right of self-preservation common to all collateral political departments but from an intention to organize a legislative formality, formul, formulary, I'm sorry, to prevent the passage of expedient laws. So he's saying, look, the reason we have these checks and balances is to prevent bad laws. The Senate's there to check the House. The President's there to check the Congress. So we don't want bad laws. That's why there's checks and balances. That's it. Not for any other reason. But he says, no, but no form in passing them was intended to make unconstitutional laws obligatory. And no reason existed for declaring that, those, that these negatives were given to arrest such laws because they would be as void after they were passed as before. Such a declaration would have, would have admitted that if neither houses of Congress nor the President stopped a law or a bill by a veto, it was to be considered as constitutional. No expressed negative upon constitutional laws is given to judges, yet they claim and exercise a negative over them. Of the same nature... Is the negative power of the states, being at least as much political department as the courts of justice, they derive from that character the same power to reject unconstitutional laws as the judges do from theirs. So there is a great summary. He says, Look, the judges don't have this power in the Constitution. They just do it. The states can do it too. Because they're political departments. And they have the power. He's saying if the if if we there's nothing in the Constitution that says that once these once the Congress passes law the President signs it it's Constitution there's nothing to see here we know that's not the case so why is it that we put all the faith in the Supreme Court when you've got this other co-equal branch leg I should say of the government which is the states that can do the exact same thing it's a powerful argument one that is very hard to refute so far this right of rejection is equal. But in other views, that of the states is infin- infinitely the strongest. As contracting parties to the Union, this right is an appendage of, their, of that character. If they are not to be so considered, it goes to them as representatives of the people, because it is an appendage of the political powers with which they are invested by the people. It is absurd to allow that they are entrusted by the Constitution with these powers, and yet prohibited from looking themselves into the Constitution, that they might exercise them faithfully the states possess political powers antecedent to the Constitution, as is acknowledged by their reservation. These state political powers previously possessed, never surrendered and expressly retained, inherently comprise a moral right of self-defense against every species of aggression, and the Constitution, instead of saying that they may be taken away by the federal government, expressly declares that they shall not, that they are without the compass of that instrument and not embraced by it at all. So he's saying, look, because the Constitution clearly says, the Tenth Amendment says it right here, you've got reserved powers. You existed before the Constitution. You existed before the Constitution. And so because you existed before the Constitution, you have powers that cannot be taken away. And Taylor is saying you have a stronger claim to veto unconstitutional laws than a Supreme Court justice. Because you were parties to the compact. And therefore, you should should be determining the extent of those powers. Not some judge who's unelected, who's appointed, but who's taken this responsibility among themselves. You have the power. States to do this. Here then is a positive constitutional veto. Clearly precluding both Congress and the federal court from touching the reserve states' rights. There's that word state rights. I thought state rights was fabricated, but here's Taylor using it in 1822. He's saying this is the real constitutional veto. veto. Nullification. That's the real veto. Is this veto to be considered as a mere didactic lecture? Or was the moral right of defending the powers reserved within the powers themselves so as to convey positively to the states the right of resisting unconstitutional laws for their own preservation? Thus, the state political departments appear to have a much sounder right to disobey and resist unconstitutional laws than even the judicial department. That state-reserved political powers exist is not denied, but it is contended that their moral right of self-defense is constructively taken away because it is inconvenient to the federal government that it should exist against which the reservation was directed. He's saying, look, it's not denied that they have powers, but it's deemed to be inconvenient for the states to do this. So we're going to give it to the courts. But Taylor is saying that's not really an argument at all, is it? That's just tyranny. You've just taken something away that they should have. And that government may suppress one part of the Constitution because it is inconvenient... It may apply the same reason to any part it pleases. So if we can suppress the powers of the states, we can do anything we want. This is what Calhoun said in 1837. Look, there's no unconstitutional laws. They don't exist because if Congress passes it, President signs it, Supreme Court upholds it, it's constitutional. They can do whatever they want. If they can pass a protective tariff, which is what Taylor is railing against here, then what's to say they can't pass anything else? They can do whatever they want. There's no unconstitutional powers. If the states can't check this stuff, there's no unconstitutional powers under the sun. They don't exist. The Roman consuls and senators, when committed to prison by the tribunes for resisting the right of veto, doubtless thought it very inconvenient that these tribunes should use the means necessary to sustain the right. When the inherent moral right of self-defense as to the reserve powers is invaded, and the states are told that it will be inconvenient if they resist the invasion, they have undoubtedly to elect between the alleged inconvenience and the loss of the right. The state governments are, in fact, tribunes of the people, entrusted with rights bestowed for the preservation of their liberty. And if they surrender those rights by surrendering the power defending them, they will be as faithful to the people as the Roman tribunes would have been had they surrendered their veto to the consuls in the Senate or as the praetors. So he's saying, look, the states are representatives of the people, and if they surrender this this ability to check the center they're surrendering their rights they're, they're surrendering to the general government they're they're abusing the people this is tyranny they're they're abrogating their responsibility as the true tribunes in America the states as the voices of the people this is a very interesting argument because you know see john marshall would say that the, when the Constitution was ratified, it was done, you know, we the people. It was done in the states because that's the only way they could do it, because they couldn't have a national plebiscite. So the states had to do it, but one people ratified this thing. So the general government is the representative of the people, not the states. But everyone knew that that's a convoluted distortion of the history of the period, that the real issue, the states were really the representatives of the people. We the people of the states of was the original preamble. And everyone recognized that the states represented the people in the states, the people of the states. There was no one people, one American people, one central authority. Taylor called a utopia for utopians. It doesn't exist. We know that doesn't exist. So this is a really beautiful chapter. Uh, These this just a couple of pages I've read to you here. And defending what's often called states' rights. He uses the term states' rights. We could, we could do this for, for a long time, and honestly, uh, at McClanahan Academy, I'm going to start doing more of these things. I'm going to go through John Taylor, and I'm going to go through Calhoun, and even Lincoln. We're going to get into some of these speeches and documents and dive into what these people said about stuff, because that's how you really learn, by going to the primary sources themselves and not focusing on you know, historians, and, but looking at what people said at the time. And when you do that, when you, when you strip away all the interpretation, as I mentioned yesterday, and you get down to that stuff and you say, this is what people were saying. Now, you can take with it what you want. Taylor is making a pretty conclusive argument. The states' rights were central to the original understanding of the Constitution. When you can do that, uh, I think you find the greatest satisfaction in American history and why our side really is the stronger side when it comes to these arguments because I can guarantee you most of the people that say states' rights were fabricated in the 1850s or in 19... Whatever it is, take your decade. They've not read carefully John Taylor of Caroline. They don't know it exists. But people read John Taylor. People understood Virginia. It's why the Virginia tradition is so important in understanding American government and why we should go back to that. Oftentimes, we just forget it at our own peril. So... Little shorter, Some shorter podcasts this week. Um, I was pressed for time this week to do these things, but uh, I hope you enjoyed this week at the Brian McClanehan Show. If you want me for a fifth time this week, don't forget about the Abbeville Institute podcast. It is on Fridays or Saturdays. Depends on when I can get it out there. Um, but that is the fifth podcast of the week. So if you like it, head on over to abbevilleinstitute.org. Abbeyville, Get that podcast too. It's also available on uh, Spotify and and uh, um, iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can get it there too. So until until next time, until next week, I'll see you then.